0: Welcome to Living Untitled. I'm your host, Justin Booten. I'm not really a science fiction guy. Stories that detail a perilous future where machines take over and rule the world, or the galaxy, or the farthest reaches of our known universe for that matter, don't really throw me. So most doomsayers talk about artificial intelligence that veers far into the realm of science fiction mostly just sounds like white noise to me. But to be a good sport about the matter, last year I read Ian McEwen's book, Machines Like Me, And finally, I got a little hooked on exploring our complicated relationship with machines, both in the world today and the ones we're building for the world of tomorrow, which led me to Romy Kind. Romy is a science nerd who stepped out of the lab and into the world of art, focusing his energy on building immersive experiences that inspire curiosity and connection. As a member of the innovation group Swissnex, Romy focuses on connecting Swiss creatives with the Bay Area innovation ecosystem with the goal of strengthening collaboration that can lead to new solutions to support our society and planet. As an artist, scientist, and all-around connector, he prides himself in understanding people, leveraging his experience in gathering insights about the needs, attitudes, emotions, and behaviors of individuals to inspire and inform his designs. So for this conversation, I wanted Romy's take on our increasingly machine powered world. What goes into designing, building and operating systems that shape our relationships with machines, ultimately allowing us to be more efficient and productive members of society. I guess let's just dive right in. I think everyone in the world right now is really focused on trying to make sense of what a future looks like with technology playing an increasingly more significant role in our lives, both our daily lives, personally, so on and so forth, how we research, how we communicate, how we work in terms of what work means so broadly for so many different categories there was a really interesting article in the economist that i was reading this morning just about how it is changing even in the us in terms of policy around unions and you know we're becoming an increasingly more pro union country from a political stance and i think even from a social stance these days and unions we we know here in hollywood right i'm here in hollywood so of course we're grappling with as the the sort of Uh, SAG and other unions in the entertainment industry that are grappling with what a future that is more AI-powered means for us. The automotive industry is doing the same at the moment. Not that this is necessarily a conversation about unions, but I think that's a good example of some larger organizations and forces in our society that are trying to grapple with what it means to live, exist, operate, be productive in a machine-powered, AI-powered sort of world. So. You being an expert in this category, I'm just so curious to kind of chat with you about this a little bit.
1: Yeah, and just to, you know, riff off of that a bit, Please. uh, is a great example because it represents the human element of the structures that they're in. Although we do, you know, see a whole, you know, slew of new technological advances on the horizon and happening right now. I would say this is something that has been happening for, you know, decades now, and we never quite came to terms with what was here before the next thing came. Increasingly, we've lost that human element as we become more and more focused on technology. So
0: yeah, I really love that example. I want to kind of just understand that a little bit more with you, that it's like coming from a place, even if we look at it from a humanistic stance, like coming from a place of anxiety to try to solve an increasingly more anxious inducing challenge, maybe isn't going to let anyone have the right sort of perspective or foundation to approach it in a healthy manner. And so I feel like you're sort of saying that from a societal, economic, maybe even political standpoint, that we're we're not even entering into this situation with the right context and information and perspective to even be productive right out of the gate.
1: This transition from you know, we can even break down. You know, what the human element is. You know, how we learn how the world works, and then we operate in how it works. And when how the world works changes as we go, you know, there's there's a little bit of a, a flaw in that model. And I think humans are actually excellent at you know growing it. Although a lot of our formative experiences happens when we're young. If part of that formative experience is appreciating learning that things are constantly changing, I think. You know, humans can be, you know, quite adept at that. As you said, is radically, the capacity is radically spread over, in unequally spread over even our cities and definitely across the world and who has access to this technology. So when we think about, you know, those, those big items you mentioned, you know, our governance and our economics, we are in a capitalistic society, which, you know, is a terrible one, but it's the best one we have right now, mm-hmm. as you know, to quote, You know, as we have these revelations or recognition that things, some things aren't working, you know, we have to think of what a interim governance economic policy might look like. You know, as we think about what our you know utopian goals might be, and this interim uh, governance is something that I've been really looking at right now, um, particularly for how we can make sure that the human element. Uh, isn't lost as we become an increasingly uh, technology-oriented society. This has absolutely not, you know, just been happening the last couple decades. This is a, a centuries-long, you know, movement from the Industrial Revolution, where you know we transitioned from, you know, from my background of the split between art and science. Those who did have the free time and capacity. I would say, fused these two seemingly separate regimes right now. And some good examples of that are the, you know, the Renaissance figures, Leonardo, scholar, artist, gentleman, is is mostly a a product of the time. But it did produce a a huge advance, especially in what I would call the science and engineering uh, industrial aspects and beauty and diversity of art that's produced by people who are solely focusing on, you know, what what is the nature of beauty, uh, have been amazing as well. But I think there is definitely something lost uh, in the the hyper focus and hyper specialization that we've undergone as we come to terms or grapple with what humans are right now in a society where technology is almost becoming their own entity. You know, through artificial intelligence and even just you know the algorithms that people put in place and have very little assessment of what that impact might be, thinking about what a a whole human can be. What is the artist and scientist, and you know, some would say also philosopher, that that allows us to think about what this next transitional uh, society might look like.
0: Why do you think it's so important to bring all of these different types of voices to the table as part of this conversation right now? Great question. I'm going to start very high
1: and then move quickly into what, you know, I I would say I have expertise in, which is not philosophy, although what drew me to this, you know, combination of, of philosophy and art and science is the platonic transcendentals, you know, truth, beauty, goodness. And these are things that we recognize exist and they are kind of fundamental to how we work. And I often think of science as the pursuit of truth, art as the pursuit of beauty, and philosophy as the pursuit of goodness. And, and goodness, as I know, is a very ambiguous term for a lot of different people, but goodness being, you know, what do we do with these things that we have? And how do we create a, a world where, you know, we thrive? And as a designer, which is partially what I consider myself, uh, in addition to being artist and scientist, is how do we design? the next technology or the next governance system because I'm even less of a designer as a storyteller I think of what is the story if we think of all these experiences as a story what story are we telling and gosh there's nothing like a story to really bring in what you know the the questions of what is true what is beautiful and what what is good whether it be a piece of architecture software or you know in my case an immersive experience as you bring somebody in to be a participant in the story in the world that you've created. I'm going to switch back to what we were talking about mm-hmm. when we live in a world that now has something like artificial intelligence. You know, how does artificial intelligence enhance our ability to design? But also, as we think about what it might be, how do we use our capacity, our human capacity, to create stories that allow? Artificial intelligence is to grow and thrive. There's a few different uh, approaches to how to create this general intelligence, or I guess I'll re- define that really quickly. So, artificial general intelligence would be a AI that doesn't just respond to questions using a language model like ChatGPT, or it doesn't just uh, run, you know, a, a machine learning algorithm to pick out what best product that you would like based on your other products. Uh, it's something that you can give any problem and it can use its capacity to, to create a solution. As we approach what that might be, I think that there's an element of embodied intelligence that we need to recognize that is a very strong aspect of who humans are. You know, we are not just brains you know, sitting in the control room and our brains and pulling levers. Uh, we have the feeling in our body and the emotional component that is core core to who we are, and I think very core to not only the obvious beauty and, and goodness aspects of, of our universe, but how we feel affects truth as well. And so, you know, when we create experiences, what experiences can we create to evolve the AIs that we would like to have in the future? When we think about what the embodiment of an AI might be, is it is it robotics? I, it could be robotics, and I, and I do love all of the potential productivity, you know, you know, leaps and bounds we would mm-hmm. make once we mm-hmm. have... AI-connected robotics, but I think if we treat AI as a genuine collaborator in this new future, how are we as humans the embodiment of AI? We use the you know, incredible capacities of, of computation to do things that we can't, but when we sense the world, how are we the body uh, of, of this you know, combined intelligence um, and always have our needs and our
0: desires in the loop as we approach alignment? Uh, with with what the, the things we create, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, our understanding of the world and everything in it it's it's all grounded in experiences. And I think it was um what Rodney Brooks, right the Australian roboticist, he talks about that idea that you mentioned there of intelligence is embodied. And so, you know, even the word intelligence right now and how we used it, and even in the examples that you gave here, when we think about general intelligence and we think about artificial intelligence and all of these these words that have the or, or these concepts that have the word intelligence built into them, it's almost directly in conflict of our past definition or understanding, and and frankly, maybe even our current still understanding of what true intelligence is. Intelligence is embodied, it's developed through human experience or experience as a whole. It's not even just, you know, I, I shouldn't even say human, right? Because there's intelligence that can be found in any living creature, any species on this planet, and maybe even beyond, who knows? But intelligence, if it's if we're talking about it in an embodied sense, that's developed, gained through experiences, you bring up such a fascinating point here of how we teach, how we design, how we engineer machines to be able to, and I don't even just mean machines in the robotic sense, but I just in the the larger sort of intelligence gathering computation process, how we approach doing that, designing these systems in a way that we enable them to gain intelligence here. Yeah,
1: I'm glad you brought up Rodney Brooks. Uh, he you know, definitely is, is focusing on the software and robotics aspects and explored a lot of the philosophies of, of what objects, and experience might be for a for computational entity. I think we need to recognize that we don't even fully understand it as a human. We recognize that we have sentience, or some people believe like we recognize that we have our own sentience and who knows about other people. Uh, but assuming we all have sentience, what is, you know, what is the nature of that? And at what points do we agree that another entity has sentience? Another point that uh, Rodney Brooks wrote about was the idea of autopoiesis versus allopoesis, which is, you know, can we can create new humans, you know, from quote unquote nothing, or allopoesis where we can evolve who we are individually. We can maybe we can, we can like change our bodies, but a robot, for example, could swap out an arm. You know, this evolving hardware. You know, with these two forms of embodiment, I think the autopoiesis is a really powerful one. If we thought about what experience we could create for an AI, like if we give AI the task to create another version of itself to experience the world again and evolve in that way, that's the mysterious and provocative uh, route that some people are afraid of. Some people, you know, think will lead to the singularity, for example, mm-hmm. is in my mind, the most human. If I were to create an experience for AI, it would be what, what, what legacy would it want to live on? How will it deal with its own death? You know, quote unquote. And, you know, how will it create that next generation? So mm. not because these things ultimately help us, but they are the fundamental, you know, relations with the universe that, that makes us human. I don't know what will happen if, the, if we give these tasks to uh, even partially General intelligence, uh, but I think it, it spurs a lot of ideas r- relevant to what I call the transcendental, or what are called the transcendentals. You know, will an AI come to a understanding of what is good for it, you know, and what is beautiful to it? Yeah, so that, that that would be the big the big experience I would like to create. However, where we are now, using human agency as a embodiment of of an AI is is a as an exciting and, and um, fruitful direction as well. Like, how do we become the robot arms and the robot eyes? for this intelligence uh, and have a feedback loop there. The feedback loop is important. And I think it's simultaneously also what people are afraid of. If we give the power of active learning to an AI where it has a general idea, it goes out, it senses, it thinks, it changes its behavior towards a goal. That's, I think, a great, a great practice right now that I'm excited to, you know, I, I see happening and I'm excited to uh, explore.
0: Do you think that we would respect a system more an ai more or trust in ai more if we knew that it understood death
1: yes next question no i get it. Um, <laughs> would empathize with the system and as much as i can you know project what empathy for an ai might be i think there could be some empathy for for the human condition as well with empathy comes trust mhm you know, that's something we see just in human-to-human interaction. And I believe that trust of these systems is one of the critical factors that allow us to evolve to the next, next phase. The incredible capacity of, you know, computational hardware system to have infinite patience and to maintain focus on priorities are things that we desperately, you know, search for when we try to put trust in a governance system. The idea of, this entity, you know, finally dying, I, you know, th- through my empathetic lens, bring in a lot of the secondary attributes, which I was referring to earlier, like if something has empathy and will die, it may take actions that will be only beneficial to that next generation. You know, any form of, is this AI accumulating wealth or is this AI accumulating power? the knowledge that it, if it is, it is temporary, and its very actions are only to provide benefit for this next generation, which is distinct from itself, I think it's a would be a,
0: a profound uh, empathetic trust-generating you mm-hmm. know, experience. If I may take the leap, are you suggesting that it's potentially possible in this scenario that these AI systems could develop their own sense of moral consciousness?
1: It's a great leap, and I would love to tell a story about that as we follow this path of how do we design systems for interacting with, with uh, machines mm-hmm. and we take a look to the left at this vast vista of moral philosophy you know i would say that yes ai systems are are based on you know especially the language models right now you know all of the thoughts and ideas we have and correct me if i'm wrong you might be more of a moral philosopher than i am the some of the foundations of moral philosophy is you know how do we rigorously look at what goodness is mm-hmm. and come to an agreement which yeah, i would you know love to you know impart onto a machine mm-hmm. uh because of the capacities that i was referring to before Yeah, you know, as we think about moral philosophy we have the beliefs in in categorical imperatives you know is, is this action good or do we believe in the outcome uh in, you know imperatives of does this action benefit the most people uh versus its cost and you know, if that fails then we add the layer of okay well does this protect does it is it serve the good of most people and also protect the people that might be hurt by it and we have all these these layers that end up in our, in our governance in a way that is i would say even more pure than than the human approach to it and we've been struggling with with moral philosophy for thousands of years and i do wonder if you know we, we take an it to that that you know by its by its fundamental nature um is more logical uh, can we actually come to an entity or at least a combined entity with us that is more moral.
0: But ultimately if we continue to make these types of investments we're doing so hoping to reap some sort of benefit out of this and if we're thinking about the the benefit of this new technology and how this is ultimately going to permeate so many different aspects of society and you know improve standards of living across the world you know, what, what are we trying to sort of achieve there? And I think the, the maybe bigger question is because we understand that, uh, you know, these standards are substantially different depending on wherever we are in the world and equally important, the trajectory of innovation and technological adoption, I mean, let's be very clear, it's not gonna be linear from region to region in the world. So how do we ensure that these benefits are felt equitably?
1: Great question. And you know, we grapple with this in San Francisco every day when we see, you know, in the, in the streets the the huge discrepancy between the haves and have not, the, the class stratification. And like you're saying, across the world, it's even more pronounced. A re-evaluation of, you know, what human pro- productivity is, I think, will be a part of this transitional, this post-capitalist transitional governance. It's working right now. We've, we've seen how capitalism can create, you know, economies of... Of happiness between people you know on a small scale i give you money for a pizza and give me pizza and we're all happy uh, however no one inherently wants an object or wants a commodity what we crave is the the outcome of that which i like to term wellness mm-hmm. you know we have a lot of definitions of what wellness is from the very basic which is you know every person may be may, you know entitled to the right of clean water shelter food uh, education, healthcare, digital connectivity—maybe digital connectivity is now a, a fundamental human right. Now that this has become a, a, a part of the fabric of our culture, and the shift to how self-actualized, how much we, you know, embody and embrace mental and physical wellness as a productivity measure—I think is part of that that shift. That key how we get there, you know, is is much different, possibly than than the final outcome. If we use the capacities of AI to have in- imminent patients and have a rigid focus on priorities, I think those are the baby steps in creating, you know, small ecosystems of wellness as a measure of productivity. You know, I can hear in my mind all these questions: of, Well, you know, who's going to who's going to create the matter, the, the economy of this? Who's going to create the the physical exchange of of goods that allows us to have healthcare and mm-hmm. and uh, education, et cetera? And I think there's a fear. I mean, a lot of these uh, challenges are driven by fear, which is if we don't have productivity in a material sense as our goal, we will not create material wellness. And I think that's a misunderstanding of human nature. I believe that uh, a self-actualized, educated, and connected person will want to pursue human goals. If we start taking that trust, that that leap into trusting that, uh, I believe we can make some baby steps towards that that transitional governance.
0: You know, your point about wellness is such a fascinating one. If we think truly about wellness as like a metric of productivity, and I don't think I used your language correctly there, but, um, you know, in that sort of sense of thinking here, you really open the door to category growth in terms of innovation around productivity, because like where you were just going here is, you know we can't just think of everything in terms of monetary exchange you know if i can fund this to receive x in return well then innovation just extends on a linear curve and we know that's not true that's not what innovation does like we've seen it we have these tremendous sort of exponential leaps in terms of innovation and growth there because when we have new technologies or systems that are introduced into the world say you know, the steam engine back in the day or whatever it may be, you know, we could look at so many examples from history. It It's not that, oh, well, this had X sort of result come of that in terms of linear growth, no it was exponential because it opened the door for so many new categories that never even existed. Never there was never even language around in terms of what a desired output would be there, therefore what roles or functions or human responsibilities in terms of investment of any energy would go into creating that output. So I think in a way you're kind of saying suggesting the same as possible here. Of course I I have not offered any specific solutions because you know, the magnitude of the problem and <laughs> I think success is really something
1: you have to try. If I were to suggest some experiences, which is which is where I come in mm-hmm. for programming society through experiences. You know, we we don't have access to the the root code of how we work just yet. And I believe Special ed- education is the big experience that programs us, and I think every experience that we create for each other, have ourselves, is a little bit of editing of that internal code to, you know, evolve how we behave for ourselves, for each other. So if I were to create this, this transitional experience, it would be we see this disparity in wealth accumulation. We wonder, can we overcome the fear of, I have a notion that the people who accumulate the most have, have the feeling of, of scarcity the most because of, of the loss. However, we can also point to examples where accumulation of huge amounts of wealth does not actually you know, create these feelings of, of connectedness, of, of, of beauty and good. If we could find incentives where directing these resources to the value that we referred to earlier, this, this value of wellness mm-hmm. as being success, as being uh, productivity, and then see the, the, the impact of that, uh, I feel like that's a story I would like to write, not the creation of an AI that is able to understand every person in the world and know exactly what to sell them. And so there's, you know, in the end, one, one mega entity that creates wage slaves. And what is this shared embodied entity that we are all, you know, the sensors and, and hands and, and eyes for that because it is one body has an extremely um, powerful incentive for the, the capacity and wellness of every part of it.
0: That's
1: a story I want to
0: write. I hope you can, and I hope that people don't embark on an experience like that out of a place of fear, but instead can find a way to do so out of a place of curiosity and interest in pursuit of something better. Because ultimately, I think that's why you do so much of this work, and I think that's sort of a resounding message that I kind of always try to impart to others and live by myself as well. can't wait to embark on that journey, that experience, and sort of see what you create from that. I hope that others are um, interested in doing the same with you. Thank you. That's how we create the stories,
1: you know, by, by working together and excited to you know see what we can do and see who we can bring in.
0: Well, thank you, Romy. This was so much fun. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.